you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in to today's episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Today's guest is Gosha Steindar. Thanks a lot for joining us, Gosha. Thank you for inviting me, Andre. Gosha is an IBM fellow, as is every guest in our show, at least up to this point. And I was trying to find out her job title, and all it says is hybrid cloud research. So we need to get to the bottom of that. Obviously, seems very relevant to the topic of this podcast overall. And by the way, I should say, Gosha and I have crossed paths every now and then throughout the years. And every time I've come across her, I was thinking, wow, she works on really cool stuff. So hopefully we can hear some more about that. Maybe, Gosha, if you could start out by just introducing yourself, tell us a bit about your history, how you got to be where you are today, and what your job is today. Glad to do that. And my history may in part explain my current role. I am an IBM fellow in IBM Research. So my job is to guide research teams in uh, exciting research projects that are advancing the state of cloud. My history with cloud, though, starts a very long time ago. When I was an intern in IBM in year 2000, I worked on the project which was called Oceana. And that was really the very first example or prototype of a computing utility. Nobody called it cloud at the time, but that was essentially a system that was supposed to offer compute capacity as a service to users. And that was before virtualization, before infrastructure as a service was created. So a lot of my current interests actually stem from that project because working on that project made me want to work for IBM. So following this, when I joined IBM in 2003, I started working on advancements of this technology. So at that time, we're talking about on-demand computing. And I worked in the context of uh, application server platforms. And we were developing essentially cloud-like capabilities in the application server that IBM productized at the time, which was WebSphere. So it has all properties of platform as a service. It was dynamic allocation of resources. It was hiding the capacity from the users, users were just concerned about running their applications. It had a concept of dynamic clusters, auto-scaling. So I viewed this as a really progression of one of the examples of what cloud is today. And then following this, you know, containers came about. And I got very excited about what you can actually do in the area of managing applications with containers in the computing utility cloud context. So together with colleagues, I built the very first incarnation of IBM Container Service, which we've later moved to Kubernetes. So we adopted Kubernetes. And that's really how the history of what is today IBM Hybrid Cloud has started. Now, in the process of this, of building the container service, I realized we cannot build a cloud without focusing on security. So I developed strong interest also in security aspects. So today, my role spans really these two areas, the advancing the hybrid cloud platform and ensuring that it has the security and compliance capabilities that are important, relevant, and critical to the types of clients that we are serving, which are enterprise clients often in a very regulated industry. 
So to answer your question now directly, what is my current role? It is really about advancing the hybrid cloud platform, which includes our container platform with the services capabilities on top of that and also securing it. So we are looking at a range of security capabilities from infrastructure layer, like zero trust, confidential computing, then through simplifying security and compliance management, so the DevSecOps or shift left and compliance automation. All right. Very cool. I think I want to take you back in time and kind of pick up on a couple of things you mentioned. But before we go there, maybe you can quickly tell us what is your definition of hybrid cloud anyway? What's the elevator speech that defines that term? Yeah. And why do we even say hybrid cloud? Why it isn't just the cloud? I may not give you a convincing answer because I view that the cloud is really evolving to encompass elements of multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, and edge as well. But we've called hybrid cloud in IBM mostly as a recognition that clients that we are serving are not going to be only adopting public cloud. We have realized that a few years ago that many of them will continue to use on-premise infrastructures that they want to have cloudified, so to speak. They essentially want to get cloud capabilities but in the context that is under their control. So we developed the word hybrid cloud as a distinction from the more kind of typical and mainstream public cloud statement or name. But we are seeing that a lot of other trends have appeared also over the recent years. So we see that the public cloud concept is also expanding towards outside of big hyperscaler data centers to encompass various edge locations. We are also seeing the development of a variety of services that are spanning multiple different cloud providers, multiple different vendors. So hybrid cloud really has evolved and we use it as a all-encompassing term to represent the diversity of various types of cloud architectures and cloud environments or deployment locations that exist and are going to exist in the industry. Okay. I think you said earlier that might not be very convincing. I did find it convincing. And it's also in line with, I ask that question every time in every episode, and it's what you just said is aligned with what everyone says, right? I mean, there's no one crisp single sentence defining what hybrid cloud is, but it always goes into, it's basically breaking the boundaries of geographical location of things and systems that could be all over the place while maintaining the architectural principles of cloud computing as they exist, so to speak. So, but like I said, I want to take you back in time. You said your very first project as an intern with IBM was something that was starting to talk about providing computing services on demand as kind of a service before virtualization even existed. And that's where I kind of got stuck a little bit because I feel like, how could you possibly do any of these things without virtualization? And the reason I want to poke on that a little bit is not just because of infrastructure virtualization, because I feel like there's a trend to virtualize literally everything. Virtualized networking, storage, all the resources that you deal with in the context of cloud are being virtualized because that will allow us to create the automations that we need to do cloud computing type things. So maybe for the sake of completeness, let's state that virtualization existed, of course, before the year 2000, but it existed on high-end servers like Z and Power. On commodity servers, virtualization was in its infancy at the time and was not used at all in server environments. So just to state that for completeness and kind of historical correctness. 
That's a good point and something our mainframe friends always remind us of, that they've done all these things 50 years exactly, ago. Exactly, right? exactly. So I just want to give them credit for the work that they've done. Yeah, yeah. Now, so how, how you do computing utility at the time when you don't have virtualization? Well, you had to allocate full servers, right? So we had what we called a farm of Linux machines, and the way you allocate them to individual users was by changing VLAN configuration. Mm-hmm. So you see how complicated that was and manipulating the front end load balancer. So essentially ensuring that the server for this period of time belongs only to you. So yes, you can do it. But you see how a profound change and transformation is really brought about by adding server virtualization because now you truly can do allocation of resources as code, fully automated. and It's much easier. Also carve resources in much finer granularity as opposed to giving a full Linux machine. I sometimes view it as kind of the evolution going from physical servers to virtual machines to then you mentioned containers, which is yet another virtualization layer, if you will, on top of virtual machines. And the question is, well, what's coming next? Because then some people will say serverless. I'm kind of wondering, how do you see serverless play in the context of this evolution towards containers? And you mentioned you've kind of gone with that in your projects over time. Yeah, I have a much broader view of serverless that maybe is mainstream in the industry. So I view serverless not as a specific programming model, but more like a a system that is hiding the details of the infrastructure from the user. So serverless doesn't have to be a function. Serverless can be execution of an AI training job, can be done in a serverless way. Spark analytics can be delivered in a serverless manner. Containers can be delivered in a serverless manner as well. In that case, user doesn't see clusters. You know, they don't have to manage clusters. They just come to an API and deploy their application package as a container. And that view of serverless, I don't think it's realized in the industry yet, but I think it goes to the heart of what the value that serverless provides, which is allowing users to focus only on the business function business problem that they want to solve takes away from them the need to worry about capacity management and resource management underneath. And hopefully it allows them to only pay for the resources that they are actually using as opposed to provisioning and paying for the entire infrastructure or cluster or whatever it is they would need to provision otherwise. So in other words, it doesn't make the container go away. It just makes it transparent. Yeah. Under serverless model, you need to have some compute capability anyway. Even if it's a simplified programming model, it runs somewhere. Underneath, there is going to be either a virtual machine or a container or some other method of encapsulating the workload. But usually, it's going to be a container. Okay. So another thing that I want to poke on a little bit is you mentioned security. So that's kind of what you've gone into now. So one of the topics of conversation that we often have is hybrid cloud versus a single cloud provider meaning that I have environments that run in multiple places. So some of the operational aspects like security need to apply independent of where something runs because it could actually run in different places at different times, as opposed to a single cloud provider, which obviously has mechanisms in place to operate in a secure way, you know, workloads that run there. And I'm trying to say this in a very abstract way. What I'm trying to really say is if I'm an enterprise and I run everything 100% in one cloud, I could completely rely on the security mechanisms that that cloud gives to me 
However, that falls apart as soon as some of my workload runs somewhere else, because then I'm going to be forced to apply maybe different security mechanisms. Now, even in the context of a single cloud provider, and you're running workload on one cloud, you still need to establish your own you know, security practice around that cloud. Yes, you, you are going to leverage the security services that the cloud provides for monitoring uh, workloads, for perhaps executing policy management or what have you, but you still will need to establish your security practice because at the end of the day, you are responsible for securing your application. So you essentially need to have security operation center focused on your applications running on that cloud. And here where you have a very good point, which is now if you move to second cloud, now you are dealing with different APIs, different services, different semantics, different risks. So yes, your problem is becoming a lot more complicated. There is indeed considerable complexity with adopting multiple cloud providers to run applications. And this is in fact what enterprises are openly declaring that they are struggling with. Now, what is very interesting is this is going to become even more convoluted and more complex because we are seeing a lot more vendors entering this environment of cloud. We are seeing telco providers, for example, entering this space or content distribution network providers entering this space, leveraging their own infrastructure and offering compute capabilities in a sort of edge locations. So that essentially means that the, we're not going to be talking about one or two or three cloud providers, but we'll be talking about multiple of them. And managing security will become even more complex. Now, good news is that we are seeing multiple vendors in the market that are already offering security capabilities across multiple cloud providers. And I think we can expect them to continue expanding to more and more cloud platforms as they evolve. We in IBM... Uh, also, you know, are investing in that space, particularly focusing on the Kubernetes platform, which is kind of a ubiquitous platform. One thing that is common among all of these vendors who are entering the space is that pretty much all of them offer a Kubernetes platform. This has become a standard for workload provisioning. So we are investing a lot in securing workloads running on Kubernetes and monitoring their security. So we can play an important role in helping users secure the Kubernetes workload in a consistent way, regardless of where they are running. Okay. And the word standard, now obviously Kubernetes is not a standard, but it's a de facto kind of standard that everyone follows, which is great because I feel like, and this is not just true for security, or I'd like to hear your opinion about it, is that in general, across the clouds, there is not a lot of standardization. There's not a lot of commonality. You know, as I'm working with the various big cloud providers, and we all know who they are, it seems like they're all doing similar things, but they're all doing it in a slightly different way and using different vocabulary, different APIs. And so I wonder if there's an opportunity for creating a standardized abstraction layer across all of that. I mean, have you come across such efforts? I've been in a number of discussions where this happened, where, you know, this was kind of considered. There is a difficulty with developing abstractions, is that abstractions are serving a purpose. You develop abstraction because of the problem you're trying to solve. So it's hard to develop abstraction that is unifying all possible APIs that may exist on other clouds without understanding what problem you are solving. And once you know what problem you're solving, you're generally developing abstraction tailored towards that specific problem. Mm. When you look at all multi-cloud 
services that exist that I am familiar with, every one of them has developed some sort of abstraction internally to simplify the model of operation with multiple clouds. But they are very specialized to their own need. Now, what may happen is that there is quite a lot of pressure from various regulators to simplify a user's interaction with multiple clouds and make it easier for them to move between clouds. Such regulations are particularly prominently coming up in Europe, where there is quite a bit of pressure on cloud providers to reduce the divergence of APIs. Now, ideally, of course, those regulators would want the workloads to be completely movable, portable between clouds. I don't know if it's technically feasible. However, some form of standardization and unification may happen as a result of that pressure. I think it's just too early to know where this is going to land. I think there's actually, I've heard of examples in regulated industries where there's mandates in place to be, where it's actually in order to be compliant, you have to prove that you can move from one cloud to another. The lack of commonality between the cloud is then overcome by manual extra work is what it comes down to. That's right. Even though I would say you mentioned abstraction, I completely agree with you. It kind of forces you into a lowest common denominator kind of thing that you don't want to end up in. Kubernetes, though, is one of those examples where it actually worked. Kubernetes, to me, is an abstraction in that it has a language or a vocabulary for resources that you deal with. And that vocabulary works, indeed, works across all the Kubernetes services across all the clouds. Indeed. The Kubernetes is an abstraction for solving a specific problem. It's an opinionated, right? So we picked a problem. How are we going to manage containers across multiple nodes? And we developed an abstraction that happens to be sufficiently valuable problem and sufficiently useful solution to that problem that it got widely adopted and it has become a de facto standard. So back to my point, you really need to focus on the problem you're solving and then you can develop an abstraction that can represent that problem. I'd like to take you in a completely different direction now because I'm very curious to learn more about the job that you have and the qualities that you look for across your team and so forth and kind of what it means to be a researcher. So one concrete example is when you go after a certain project or a certain effort, how do you determine if it's researchy enough? What's the criteria to say, oh, this is something worth for us picking up because it's forward-looking, it's not a regular business-as-usual development kind of project, or how do you pick the work that you engage in? It's a tricky task, to be honest with you. You know, when I started a career in IBM, the definition of a researcher was completely different than what it is today. When I was starting, a researcher was a person who was doing more academic work, publishing papers. So it was definitely forward-looking. And it had this academic aspect to it. We kind of measured the value of that work by actually how the publications that you have. That was kind of an indication. It has changed a lot. Today, yes, of course, we value very much the academic aspect and being able to validate the work that you're doing in academic communities by, you know, publishing papers. But a lot of our work is also more in the category of innovation. So we are doing things that maybe nobody has yet done before. And maybe they are not necessarily mapped to a specific scientific problem, but they demonstrate what is feasible with technologies that exist. Does that include literally that you would go out and say, here's a problem, and then you do a search and you see, oh, somebody already published a paper on this, so that's already taken, so we'll go off and do something else? 
Well, this would be an oversimplification, but no, oftentimes we look at the paper and we rejoice that someone else is interested in this problem. And we see how does that approach map to the problem we think should be solved. And it's always the case that there isn't a complete mapping from the research work that has been done to the specific problem, but we can advance upon that work by making it better, by prototyping it in a different way. So there is always a progression from what others have done. I always say that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. We always only advance. Even science is actually quite incremental. We always advance the work that has been done by others in that community. Related to that, and I hope you don't think of this as a trick question, but shouldn't science and advances in research be free and open and available to anybody? So how do you balance the fact that you're working in research, that you're probably collaborating with academia quite a bit, with the fact that you're actually working for a vendor, for a commercial company that's trying to make a profit? How does that work? Again, coming back to this whole, you pick a project, you find something you want to get engaged in, then how do you decide how open about that you can be to the public? Yeah, that's another thing that has changed a lot in IBM since I joined. Early on the kind of core research that we did, the papers that we published, they were, of course, open, publicly available. We would speak about them without any reservation at conferences. We tried to make the results that we achieved as reproducible as they can be. But parallel to that, we had product development where we contributed these technologies and software for these products was, of course, proprietary. And this has changed a lot. Right now, when we develop something, we very often, more often than not, put it in the open source as well. So that makes our research now directly reproducible. You can essentially take our code and run, but we also contribute it. Now, there are plenty of examples in the world, Red Hat being probably the best one of them, that there isn't a conflict between developing software in the open and being able to make business out of it. So we are actually not too concerned about that particular aspect. Our job is to advance technology, show it to the world, demonstrate that, that it's valuable to the company. And most of the time, that technology can be done in the open. Okay. And then how do you measure success? In multiple ways. So we definitely measure it by being able to create products or services that our clients want to use. So that translates into revenue. But we measure it also by the ability to influence open communities and open standards. So you are going to see a lot of IBM research people in various open communities, Linux, Kubernetes, CNCF, and others. And we do measure it also by the scientific impact. You know, are we present in the main conferences where other academic researchers, our industry researchers show up? Is our work known in the industry and in academia? So that comes back to publishing papers and things like that, or maybe patents. So how important are patents in all this? Also very important. Patents are, of course, a way to protect intellectual property. So it's, you know, our obligation to the company to patent ideas that we have. They are also an indication of the novelty of the work. So basically it works as a confirmation that you're doing innovation. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time here. There's one question I want to make sure I ask before we let you go. 
that I ask everyone is if you could give us an example of something really cool that you're working on or that you're about to work on that gets you excited to come to work in the morning, so to speak. Pretty much everything that is technology related makes me excited. <laughs> in the morning and in the evening, doesn't matter of the time of day, but maybe I'm just going to mention one project. It's actually a project originates in Red Hat team and it's called KCP. It sounds like an acronym and it is an acronym, but nobody has ever defined what the full name is. So it's just called KCP. The project makes me excited because it is a new spin, if you will, on the Kubernetes itself. When you look in the guts of Kubernetes, you see that it is composed of what is called the API machinery, which is essentially this desired state management layer that Kubernetes is applying to manage containers. A few years ago, we have established that that API machinery, the desired state management, is actually value in itself. And you can apply it to solve a variety of other problems, not just container management. So a few years ago, when we were building next-gen infrastructure as a service platform for IBM, we actually based it on Kubernetes, on its desired state management layer. So KCP project is sort of extracting this desired state management layer and applies it to different contexts. So essentially glorified custom resource definitions? Yes, it is a way to make the management platform a lot more customizable using custom resource definitions. But now I can apply it to manage, to provision, manage lifecycle of resources that have nothing to do with Kubernetes, VMs on some other cloud. I can apply it to manage network resources but still have the advantage of this very powerful machinery of desired state management. So the implementation of distributed orchestration becomes a lot more approachable to developers who are not necessarily experts in distributed systems. That's why we love it. All right. It sounds very cool. Is there information about it out there? Can I Google it? Publicly available. There you go. I'll check into it. All right. With that, we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for coming. This was really interesting. I always feel like I could keep talking forever, but you know, we'll save that for another day, maybe. And there was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Andre. All right. Well, with that, thank you all for listening. That's it for today. I hope to see you all soon.